And as I did foretell you, we are tonight going to be speaking about the philosophy of mind with two young academically-based philosophers who specialized in that area of their own broad and historically-based discipline. They are David Finkelstein, who is professor of philosophy at the University of Chicago, and David Hilbert, who is professor of philosophy at the University of Illinois, Chicago. Gentlemen, you remember a, a psalm, uh, supposedly, from King David, Psalm 8, verse 4. What is man that thou art mindful of him? I want to play on that one and ask you, what is mind that thou art to be amused by it? Why is mind a matter of interest to philosophers rather than to neuroscience types and psychologists and such like? I think mind's of interest to philosophers, not kind of in opposition to neuroscientists and the rest of them, but it's something we all know about, so it's a natural object of speculation. And, of course, it's especially interesting to philosophers since it's our only tool. It's our main uh, 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 unlike other professions who have other tools, historians have facts and data, and uh, but philosophers just have the mind, and so we think about our tool. You don't collect data, you think. Uh, well, maybe some of my data is, as it were, derived from, as yeah. it were, my own awareness of my thinking, and that to be sure. uh, makes it a, a, a topic that philosophers can access without actually having to leave their armchairs. That's uh, David Hilbert's response to my first question. What's David Finkelstein's? response. What is mind that thou art bemused by it? Well, if you're asking why are philosophers interested in it rather than psychologists or neuropsychologists, or, or, or I, you know, I could say first that we got there first. Psychology branched off from philosophy. But, um, uh, you know, the, the issues that philosophers are interested in tend to have to do with minds. So we're interested in knowledge, we're interested in the minds, you know, how a subject relates to the world. Can you know anything about the world? Can you talk about the world? How is it possible to talk about the world? All of these things have to do with mindedness. I don't know if that's an answer. Mindedness is interesting. It's fun it to think answer. about. When I was a child student at Brooklyn College as an undergraduate, I was told that the in my Philosophy 101, of course, I was told philosophy has five divisions, metaphysics, aesthetics, ethics, logic, and epistemology. Uh, that You wouldn't say that in an inter introductory course anymore, would you? Uh, no, I would not say that. I wouldn't probably want to divide it up, and if I were to try divide it up, I wouldn't use those divisions. That's but the sure. closest that the study of mind by philosophers comes to is... Uh, or is the, the, the closest link is back to what used to be called, what is still called, epistemology. Isn't that right? Sure. Um, How does one define epistemology, then? Theory of knowledge. Uh, anybody who's worrying about how we know or what it is to know, what is knowledge, is it possible to know, if you're worried about skepticism and whether maybe we don't know all that we think we do or anything. And those are all functions of mind. Uh, right. And so if you're worrying about, you know, knowledge is one relation that mind has to world. So... If you're thinking about epistemology, you're thinking about mind's relation to world. What is the relevance of the great anecdote told by Boswell in his life of Samuel Johnson? They're walking together on the Strand, and uh, Boswell is trying to explain the thought of Bishop Barclay to uh, Samuel Johnson. <laughs> Johnson comes upon a big boulder, you remember this, mm -hmm. and kicks it, and he says, thus do I refute Bishop Barclay. What does that have to do with our topic tonight? Well, Barclay thought that all there was was mind, 
uh, and its contents. And uh, Johnson thought, I think wrongly, that he could refute Barclay by demonstrating the brute physicality of the stone. Now, what do you mean when you say that Barclay thought that all there was is mind? Uh, Barclay thought that there were minds, things that think, and he thought that there were the ideas that those minds have, which wouldn't exist outside of the minds, and he thought that's all there was. And what, what was his attitude, or what was his consignment of the physical world? Uh, the physical world, the material world, was what Barclay would have called it. He thought there was no such thing. It was a philosopher's invention, a bad idea. Uh, getting rid of it kind of put you into this epistemic paradise where you could know everything you wanted to know. But did he really believe that? Or did, was that his way of saying systematically, we cannot have direct access to that which is beyond uh, our human senses and the operations that mind works upon sense data? No, it wasn't just that we couldn't have direct access to something. I, I think he didn't think it made sense to talk about what we couldn't have access to. And so what we're talking about when we talk about tables and chairs and books and all of that are mind, ultimately. Sounds like a pretty peculiar position when it comes down to just common sense evaluation. And that's what uh, Johnson was giving, a common sense evaluation. Though Barclay thought it was commonsensical. Yeah, Barclay went to great lengths, in fact, to try to argue that, in fact, all he was doing was explaining uh, in philosophical terms what everybody, ordinary people, thought and that all these problems had just been created by philosophers. Uh, as he put it in the uh, preface to one of his books, uh, first we raise a dust and then complain we cannot see. So. Is, is Johnson's refutation totally worthless? Yes. yes. Kicks the stone. <laughs> Why? Um, because all Johnson succeeded in doing was getting some more ideas. So, from Barclay's point of view. From Barclay's point of view. But you don't believe that the stone is unreal, do you? Uh, I don't believe that the stone is unreal, but I think given the philosophical assumptions that Barclay shared with other people at the time, I actually think Barclay had some pretty good arguments. Right. If I were Locke, I'd have been worried. Start with empiricism. Start with that picture of our relation to the world. Yeah. And then it does look like you know the world drops out. That is a fascinating sentence that I do not truly understand. Are you referring to Locke? Yeah, Locke and he's the great British uh, empiricist sure. at roughly the same time. How do they differ? How do they, how do they relate to the thought of Bishop Berkeley as we've just been discussing it? Well, start with the view that what we, uh, that the foundation of all empirical knowledge are impressions, where impressions mm -hmm. are understood a certain way. Impressions are understood as um, various things, items that can be understood, uh, that require no conceptual sophistication. I don't know where to, where to start with this. Um, impressions fall short of, of the world. So my acquaintance with an impression is not an acquaintance with any kind of worldly object. What I know in the first instance is, is not a table, a chair, or anything like that. I know that. it through my own senses. But I don't. what I know through my own senses are not things like tables, chairs, books. What Barclay was complaining about is Locke and some of the other pairs had the idea that first we're aware of what's going on inside our minds, mm -hmm. and then we use that as signs of what's going on in the world outside us. So all our awareness of the world outside of our minds is kind of mediated or by means of first being aware of what's inside our minds. And Barclay okay. kind of said, why not, why not stop with what we really know, which is what's going on inside our mm -hmm. minds, and, and cut out this uh, unknown, postulated, uh, inferred external reality. That was that was, and so Locke's assumption that 
the only access we have to the external world is by first being having access to ourselves is what Berkeley thought caused all the problems. Well, how did Locke react to Berkeley's systematic thought? Uh, uh, Locke was earlier. He's earlier. Yeah. He's seventeenth century. That's, and in fact, that's true. Uh, but the, the how does Hume react? Hume uh, was the same uh, nobody reacted to Berkeley. Uh -huh. <laughs> uh, uh, his work was almost entirely undiscussed uh, in any serious sense. Do his but, views prevail in that university just across the bay from San Francisco? Um, you see, you see, you mean at, at Cal, as we uh, Stanford people. Well, call. I'm talking about <laughs> University of California right. uh, at Berkeley, right? Which is named for him. Right. Although it was named for him because he had this other project, which was to, uh, he thought European civilization was decadent and yeah. doomed, and the only hope lay in the West. And the uh, railroad barons who founded the University of California knew this. They knew his famous poem, which contains line, Westward, the course of empire makes the right. way. And that's why the university was named after him, not because of his... Not because of <laughs> these epistemological right. musings. Yeah, his views haven't prevailed in many places. Yeah. Um, well, it's against all common sense. He would say no. Yeah, of course he would say no. But I think Bishop, uh, rather, I think Samuel Johnson was essentially right, and that's a good philosophical argument. Um, but I, I, I know how you could quickly uh, decompose that argument and demonstrate that it's um, tautological at best. Uh, another large and fascinating question, there's so many questions in the realm of philosophy of mind, is what is it like, really, to have our sort of mind as compared to the minds of other beings. We assume, we anthropomorphize our pets, and we assume that dogs sort of have feeling and thought, but if you think about it more carefully, we know that there must be a tremendous difference between the quality of dog consciousness, if there is any dog consciousness, and the consciousness of the master. If you work further, further down the phylogenetic scale, where do you reach the point where you have to say there's probably no mind? This is an, an automaton with hard wiring which accounts for all that it, the animal, does. Would, would, would one say that of ants? One has a feeling one might. There are quite fascinating questions here about the uh, levels of mind across the scale of animal life, not to mention, for that matter, botanical life. We will, let's pursue that just a bit from the philosopher's point of view. When we return, right after these words, and we return to David Finkelstein, who is professor of philosophy at the University of Chicago. David Hilbert, who is of the same discipline at the University of Illinois, Chicago. Both of them tend to specialize in the philosophy of mind, though they've got other interests as well, to be sure. Uh, a maxim in psychology, which I learned when I was a beginning graduate student, is that all function is an operation of structure. All psychological function, one would have said. Uh, thus, when it comes to what we do psychologically, our feelings, our uh, thoughts, uh, our moods, um, our rational operations, these are all operations of structure. Structures are at the base. Those structures are, of course, essentially the structures of the central nervous system, and the processes uh, that they are engaged in might properly be called neurochemical. They have to do with millions, even billions of neurons firing off across synapses in all sorts of patterns which cannot yet be fully mapped, though now we can at least find areas of the brain that are activated at a given time. Uh, that being so, and knowing that, uh, as we do, that this, the 
the central nervous system structures of other animals are sometimes quite different from ours. The high anthropoid apes have similar brains, though by no means as much uh, forebrain development as we have. Uh, but if you get down to the level of dog, it looks very different. Down to the level of snake or bird, even le even more different, uh, more primitive brain, less of the third uh, layer of brain, which gives us our distinctive qualities. Get down to ants or bees, and uh, it's a totally different matter. How far down do we go before we have to assume that some sense of self, some awareness of being a being in a world, in a setting which poses problems and opportunities is not there, that it's hardwired and there is no being at home? I think a sense of self is a pretty sophisticated achievement. Mm -hmm. So. Um... I don't think you have to go far down at all. Do you think chimpanzees have a sense of self? It's going to depend on what you mean by a sense of self. Um, but without language, I'm, I'm not entirely sure what it comes to, a sense of self. Although chimpanzees, at the least, unlike most other animals, including most monkeys, ha actually have the ability to recognize themselves in mirrors. In mirrors so most, right, they so can most animals react stop. to their own reflection as if it were another animal, while chimpanzees, like human beings, can figure out that that's actually themselves. That's been done experimentally. Sure. And that's sure. been done experimentally, and that seems to suggest that they have some kind of concept of themselves as kind of different from other things and are capable of recognizing it. Like David, I think probably the sense of yourself as something distinct from the rest of the world may be an accomplishment that only relatively few animals, but the sense of consciousness in which there's something it's like to be that animal, I'm inclined to think, you know, like something it's like to see red or whatever, have a sensory experience. I'm inclined to think that's probably something we can attribute with some confidence to most, maybe all vertebrates. Uh, insects are so different that I don't even know what we're talking about. Yeah, well, we'll stay with the vertebrates for a moment. What exactly are you attributing to all vertebrates? Well, so when I look at you and mm -hmm. see your blue sweater, there's an experience of blueness I have, and there's, as philosophers nowadays like to put it, there's something it's like for me to have that experience. Mm -hmm. It's not just a registering of, of uh, color. There's a kind of phenomenal that, 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 that we all know what it's like to see blue. And I think there's something it's like for dogs to have dog sensory experiences. They're not going to be like... Except there is ours. that classical problem of epistemology. You look at my sweater, and indeed you call it, you call it blue. Mm -hmm. uh, and the other David uh, may be looking at my sweater, and he would also call it blue, but the actual internal experience that you've got is unknowable by any one of the other two of us. And so you may have totally different experiences, though you both code them as blue. That's something that some philosophers have thought. And that's something, I mean, that's a problem that kids often come up on. I think that was the first philosophical thought I ever had. I had it, I was remember, there? when I was about seven. I actually don't think it's coherent, ultimately. I, I think that it involves a conception of sensations that's uh, pulling sensations too far away from the context in which they occur. Well, we know that if you've got a variant of colorblindness, not necessarily full colorblindness, which is monochromatic, but if you've got a variant of colorblindness, some color blindness, uh, you can still call this blue, but in fact be having a different subjective experience than somebody else who calls it blue. But you won't be behavior. I mean, you were imagining a moment ago something that could never be found out, I take it. And that variant of color blindness is something that we could figure out. Yes, with the Ishihara test cards, as a matter of fact. Yeah, right although yeah. this is something I'm actually 
working on what you you can find out that somebody is partially colorblind, but it's actually very difficult to get clear evidence as to how things look to them. Yes, you have clear evidence that they don't look the same as they do to us, because things that look the same look different to us oh, look the same. That's to them. My, that's my very point. Right. Yeah, but that doesn't tell you yet how they look. So so well, what it, the inner subjective experience is. What the inner subjective. But notice that that you haven't yet doubted that they have one no I which not. was your original question so um but there's a question as to what is it that we can know about the inner yeah. experience of other uh animals i'm inclined to think that you started off with the something right which is that there's this physiological basis for these things mm -hmm. and insofar as that's similar that at least gives us some assurance that what looks blue to me also looks blue to him because our brains are so overwhelmingly similar in the relevant ways but can we in any way empathize, approximate, or even for that matter, rationally uh, discover what it's like to be a garter snake crawling in the forest and looking up at us, as it may sometimes do. I, I think we can discover and actually know quite a lot about what it would be like for a garter snake. Now, what you have to do is you have to learn things about garter snakes. Yeah. Um, um, in my own area of interest, which is vision, if you learn a lot about garter snake eyes, you can get quite a lot about so we're, what they find out about the world by looking, and that gives you some idea of what it's like to be a garter snake looking at them. What, what kind of distinctions they make. And what? You can learn what kind of distinctions they're going to be able to make and what kind of distinctions yeah. they're not going to be able to make and what yeah. they're going to be able to notice and what not. I mean, there's this but dream of... the inner life of the snake. Right, there's a, there's a kind of dream of the thing that's beyond all of that, beyond yeah. all of the behavioral distinctions, beyond what the snake can do, beyond what the snake can, you know, anything that it can show in its behavior. There's the inner thing, the mysterious inner thing, and that's the thing that I'm suspicious of. That's the thing that I think we tend to sort of lapse into nonsense. Of course, there were psychologists, as you know, who had some considerable skepticism about trying to analyze the inner experience of human beings. Uh, it was the American look in psychology. It was the behaviorist look invented or developed by John B. Watson, who started at the University of Chicago, as most people don't know, uh, and certainly perfected uh, in later years by Skinner. Uh, by Skinner, mm -hmm. uh, where essentially the human mind and the human personality, for that matter, were considered to be a black box whose inner workings we really don't know and should not presume to know, but we can develop all the stimulus-response laws that are operative by testing them. Yeah, look, that was one reductionist program. That was one program of trying to say, I'm going to, I'm going to give a, I'm going to have my privileged set of scientific terms in these, in, the, in those cases, behavioral terms, right? Those are the legitimate mm -hmm. terms, and I'm going to try That's to reduce. What they said. I'm going to try to reduce everything to that. So I'm going to try to reduce or eliminate it, right? So if you want to know what a belief is or a hope is or a sensation is, either tell me in behavioral terms, or if you can't tell me in behavioral terms, there's no such thing really and, as and belief. In the age of Freud, where the theory of the unconscious played an important role in psychological thought. John B. Watson, the father of behaviorism, said, I don't know what that means, except that it's in all likelihood sub-vocal thought. It's people talking to themselves, but not articulating in a way that others understand, or maybe even that they fully understand. It's sub-vocal or pre-vocal. But he relates thought, he says all thought is really uh, speech. speech. Right. Yeah, he had the, it seems to me, s silly view that yeah. thinking is just talking to oneself. Yes, he did. Uh, and, and... Is it a silly view? Yeah, I think it, I think it is a silly view. I think it's and I, close to a view that's not silly. That is, the, the view, that, the view that, that 
thought can be modeled on talk, a view that we might associate with someone like Wilfred Sellers or, or, or Peter Geesh, that thoughts are like speech in certain respects, but not a lot like speech in other respects. You have to be careful. So you don't have to talk to yourself. You don't have to have verbal imagery. But, for example, you know, thoughts can be true just as assertions can well, be true. I can put to David Hilbert this challenging question. Are you, aware, are you aware of any thoughts you've had recently that did not take verbal form? Um, so there's two questions. One is whether thoughts are kind of language-like or yeah. in language. And then there's the other question of whether you actually have to move your muscles to think. Uh, Watson held the silly view that right. you actually mm -hmm. have to move your muscles to think. Yeah. There's another... Particularly much the, the muscles that control speech. speech yeah. Right. There's another much more sophisticated uh, view that, you ha that thoughts are in some language-like medium or somehow tied to language in some essential mm -hmm. way. That's a much more sophisticated view that I'm also inclined to doubt, but it's not silly. Well, and there's a view that, I mean, the view I was talking about is not, say, Jerry, you know, a kind of view that thoughts are in a language-like medium. There's that view. But there's also a view that thoughts are, it's not that there's some internal code, it's not that there's any, but that thoughts are, have many, that the idea what a thought is, our concept, the concept of a thought is derivative, is parasitic on the concept of an assertion. And that's a view I quite like, actually. A small shift of topic. Uh -huh. As you know, in your field, there are some philosophers who've been much preoccupied for the last 20 or 30 years, with the question of how consciousness emerges at all. Consciousness is seen as a mystery that, there, that consciousness itself should exist. Let me read to you uh, from one philosopher who's much identified with that question. You know his name, of course, David Chalmers, who starts one paper saying, conscious experience is at once the most familiar thing in the world and the most mysterious. There is nothing we know about more directly than consciousness, but it is extraordinarily hard to reconcile it with, every, with everything else that we know. Why does it exist? What does it do? How could it, remember the it is consciousness itself, how could it possibly arise from neural processes of the brain? These questions are, most, are among the most intriguing in all of science. The myriad views within the field range from reductionist theories, according to which consciousness can be explained by the standard methods of neuroscience and physiology, and psychology rather, to the position of the so-called mysterians, who say we will never understand consciousness at all. Are you guys interested in that issue? Uh, I'm interested sure. in that issue, uh, uh, although unlike Chalmers, uh, I think that he's too, both too pessimistic and too optimistic. He's uh, too pessimistic in thinking that uh, there's nothing intelligible you can say about consciousness mm -hmm. relation to the brain. And he's too optimistic in thinking that we all actually know what consciousness is. Well, there's been a lot of exercise of this question, a lot of argument in recent years, has there not? Sure, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Does he, does he um, define the two major positions properly when he speaks of um, uh, a reductionist theory and a theory of the mysterious? Uh, I don't think the theory of the mysterious is all that widespread or popular, if that's what you mean by major. I also, you know, neither of those is, is my view. I'm, uh, what is your view? Well, I'm not a reductionist. So, so he's presupposing, in the passage that you read, he's presupposing a couple of things. He's presupposing that my relation to my own interior, as it were, is, can be called direct. 
that is. My mm-hmm. relation to my own sensations say, is more direct than my relation to your sensations. And there's a kind of suggestion there that what I have when I have a sensation and I tell you about it or I know about it, it's a kind of quasi-perceptual access. I look inward, I see my sensation, um, and I could never get that kind of access to your sensation. This this runs, I mean, this is part and parcel of a whole lot of psychology and philosophy on on sensations and consciousness, I think it's just a mistake. I but the deeper that's... question is, if you've got millions of neurons firing across synapses, uh, and it's a neurophysiological process, we know a good deal about that process, how does that transform qualitatively into uh, what we experience as our own conscious identity? The other thing I was going to say that Chalmers is presupposing, and you are as well, is a kind of reductionism. That is, you want to understand the mind in terms of neurons. So you want to understand... Uh, I'm condemned to that by having been trained as a psychologist. Right. I don't. I mean, I, I don't feel any pressure to understand mindedness. But without your brain, you wouldn't be you. Absolutely. Really. Without my brain, I wouldn't have a mind. Yeah. So having a, having a brain, without my heart, I wouldn't have a mind either. True. Um, without a body, I wouldn't have a mind. With without a heart, you wouldn't live. Without a good portion of your brain, you would still be sure, alive. Sure, brains, brains enable consciousness. They yeah. enable all kinds of things. They enable movement and thought and all of that. But it doesn't mean that thinking or sensation reduces to anything that happens in the brain. This does throw us back to one of the founders of modern philosophy, I would guess. Does it not, to Descartes? Um, certainly, Descartes thought that the... Well, he thought that there, in fact, was no relationship between consciousness yes. and the brain. Uh, so that consciousness was its own thing that took place in its own metaphysical realm. And then the brain was part of the material world, and that was this different world, and they were wholly separate, although I, they interacted. Through the pineal gland, strangely Through the enough. pineal gland. Well, why, did he was, need, why did he need to find an interaction? Um, because if there is no interaction, then there's this big mystery, uh, which is how is it that our thoughts actually manage to be about the world? and guide behavior, allow our bodies to move in intelligible ways. The only other option, if you're going to have this kind of dualism, is to be like Leibniz, who thought they're just two separate worlds, and God set them up, and they run along on parallel tracks. Now, I think David Finkelstein has identified himself as a kind of dualist. Do you, David Hilbert, take the same position? No, I'm a, I'm a happy uh, reductionist. Uh, uh-huh. The only quibble I'd have about what you were saying earlier is that you said, well, how do these billions of neurons transform into something yeah. And they don't or transform; they, they just are. But how do they generate what I think in your in your realm is called the qualia of uh, of consciousness? Define qualia, by the way. Uh, well, <laughs> well, define qualia. Uh, qualia is actually now used mostly just as a word for this thing I was trying to talk about earlier, though. What it's like part of having an experience. Yeah. Um, again, being a perfectly happy reductionist. Uh, uh, they don't do any generating of qualia. They just are the qualia. So, so we're being in the right kind of brain state. Well, are they then also for the the lowly earthworm? Um, I think my own view is I can look at behavior and physiology and say with some confidence that dogs, even garter snakes, have something like the kind of qualia that I have. Earthworms and ants and honeybees are so different that it's hard for me to see how to actually answer the question. Maybe they do. If they do, it's nothing like what we have. Actually, can I comment on dualist? Please. Um, 
You want to resist being classified as I one? I don't mind. I'm not a substance dualist. So Descartes was a substance dualist. Descartes thought there were two kinds of stuff. There was mental stuff and yeah. material stuff. I don't think there are two kinds so of stuff. So does Plato, as a matter of fact. Fair enough. Um, I don't think there are two kinds of stuff. I do think that natural science doesn't explain everything. I don't think natural science explains, say, va evaluative things. I don't think natural science is in a position to tell us very much about what's good or bad, what's right to do, what's wrong to do, but I'm not a skeptic about what's good and bad, what's right to do and what's wrong to do. So anything that has a kind of evaluative, I mean, to sort of now to generalize, anything that has a kind of evaluative dimension, I think natural science just isn't in the position of talking about, which doesn't mean there aren't facts about it. And I think things like mindedness have evaluative dimensions, especially sort of meaning, anything meaningful, so beliefs, desires. Of course, there are consciousnesses and consciousnesses. There are some that are more complex than others. Uh, we're going to pause right now, take care of some commercials. When we return, I want to offer you a very rich and complex consciousness, uh, which has been elaborated in uh, literary terms. Uh, I want you to, ex I'll say no more, but I think you and all of our listeners will enjoy an exposure to a man musing about his own nature. We are talking about, among other things, the human mind and human consciousness, and I, I'm about to offer to David Finkelstein and David Hilbert, a very complex guy uh, who's thinking about himself and his lot in life and his need to find some course of action. This is, of course, Hamlet. Uh, this is at the stage in the play where he has asked the, um, the player king, the head of the touring troupe of actors, to do a speech. Uh, just to amuse Hamlet, the speech that he had heard him give once before, describing Hecuba after the fall of Troy and describing her miseries. The player king does it, he weeps as he does it, and then uh, Hamlet sends the players off, telling Polonius to take good care of them, and he stands alone, and this is what he says to himself. Now I am alone. Oh, what a rogue and peasant slave am I. Is it not monstrous that this player here, but in a fiction, in a dream of passion, could force his soul so to his own conceit that from her working all his visage wand, tears in his eyes, distraction in his aspect, a broken voice, and his whole function suiting with forms to his conceit, and all for nothing. For Hecuba. What's Hecuba to him? Or he to Hecuba that he should weep for her? What would he do had he the motive and the cue for passion that I have? He would drown the stage with tears and cleave the general ear with horrid speech, make mad the guilty and appall the free, confound the ignorant and amaze indeed the very faculties of eyes and ears. Yet I... A dull and muddy metalled rascal peak like John a dreams unpregnant of my cause and can say nothing. No, not for a king, upon whose property and most dear life a damned defeat was made. Am I a coward? Who calls me villain? breaks my pate across, plucks off my beard and blows it in my face, tweaks me by the nose, gives me the lie i' the throat as deep as to the lungs. Who does me this? Huh? Swoons, I should take it, for it cannot be, but I am pigeon-livered, 
and lack gall to make oppression bitter, or ere this I should have fatted all the region kites with this slave's offal. Bloody, bawdy villain, remorseless, treacherous, lecherous, kindless villain, oh, vengeance! Why, what an ass am I? This is most brave that I, the son of a dear father murdered, prompted to my revenge by heaven and hell, must like a whore unpack my heart with words and fall a-cursing like a very drab, a scullion, fire-pont about my brains. Um, I have heard that guilty creatures sitting at a play have by the very cunning of the seeing been struck so to the soul that presently they have proclaimed their malefactions. For murder, though it have no tongue, will speak with most miraculous organ. I'll have these players play something like the murder of my father before mine uncle. I'll observe his looks, I'll tempt him to the quick. If it do blench, I know my cause. The spirit that I have seen may be a devil, and the devil hath power to assume a pleasing shape, yea, and perhaps out of my weakness and my melancholy, as he is very potent with such spirits, abuses me to damn me. I'll have grounds more relative than this. The play's the thing, wherein I'll catch the conscience of the king. Now, there you have a sort of a mixed-up guy, uh, very conflicted, judging himself, judging himself negatively, comparing himself to a, a mere actor who can fake deep remorse over the death of a character delineated uh, by Homer in the Iliad, whereas he cannot bring himself to kill his uncle Claudius, who killed his father. Uh, and still, maybe when his father's ghost appeared to him, that wasn't really his father, but was the devil disguised as Hamlet's father. Everything is terribly complicated, and he's aware of being deeply conflicted. Uh, that's a very human and complex human being, wouldn't you say? Absolutely. And, and I wanted to say, Milk, you did a beautiful job reading that out loud. It was, it was, I was moved by <laughs> well, the way that you read that. I'm, I'm sorry you gave it away. I oh. like people to think that that was a recording. Though, in fact, it was a recording of, of an excellent actor from uh, the British um, uh, Royal Shakespeare Company. Um, but what do we make of that complexity of mind? Well, that's certainly a beautiful illustration of a kind of consciousness that only human beings Dogs have. don't do that. Dogs do not do Even that. Even apes don't do that, do they? Even apes almost certainly do not do that kind of depth and complexity yeah. of reflection on their own reactions to the world. And, and that's part of what Hamlet's doing. He's reflecting on how he himself is reacting. He's judging to, himself. He's judging himself. He's, he's looking and saying, I should do this, I should feel this way, mm -hmm. and I don't, and that's wrong. Uh, it also ends with a nice little bit of psychology uh, where he, as it were, predicts how his uncle will react to seeing a certain kind of scene acted out. So it's not all self-reflection. It also demonstrates the other kind of knowledge that we have about conscious states, namely that we actually know quite a lot about what other people will think and how they will behave, and that's how the scene ends. Now, of course, the great question about Hamlet that was uh, asked for all the centuries that followed the original 
uh, publication of the play, the original performance, was um, why does he hesitate as much as he does? And we've had whole theories of Hamlet uh, in, based upon different uh, different theories of human motivation. Sure. There was a Freudian interpretation. He really favored the killing of his father because he had an Oedipal lust for his mother. There is that interpretation. There's it's a silly also, interpretation. Well, there are more straightforward interpretations. I don't know if it's a silly interpretation, but, um, you know, one... I don't, I don't know what you want me to say about it. I, I, it's, it's not my favorite interpretation of that. What is your favorite interpretation? I think Hamlet doesn't yet have uh, really compelling grounds to believe, to believe that Claudius killed his father, not mm -hmm. enough to go and kill someone on the basis of. He's too thoughtful a guy to get, just go and act, to have a little bit of reason or some Then ground. why is he at the same time so full of self-hate? Rather than mere cool rationality, I gotta check this out further. Because he has trouble knowing himself. He has, you know, this is a guy who has difficulty figuring, any, or knowing what to think about himself. He mm -hmm. wonders whether he's just giving him an ex himself an excuse, you know. So, yeah, he gives, you know, he's 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 come up with this sort of epistemic procedure, <laughs> this this way to go about and, and and check to see if Claudius really is the killer. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, he wonders whether he's just being a coward, and it's very hard to know these. Now, things. is he in that? Does he represent all of us? Do we always judge ourselves in? seek out the possible um, least acceptable motive for what we've done I, I, and then chide ourselves for not being the best we can be? Uh, I, I can't speak for everyone. I can certainly speak for myself, and I think probably most people are like me. Yeah, yeah. You do at that At least that entertain that thought. I don't usually get quite as worked yeah. up as Hamlet is in that scene, but... Uh, 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 but yeah, no, we, we reflect and our motives are often mysterious to us and we're figuring out what they are and sometimes uh -huh. some of the possibilities are actually unpleasant ones. So now we touch again upon a basic question about human mind. Why are our motives often mysterious to us or unavailable to us? Good. Um, yeah, I, I take it that there are conscious and unconscious motives. We sometimes act on desires that we don't know ourselves to have. Um, I actually take it that there are unconscious motives that we sometimes know ourselves to have. I take it that consciousness, I mean, this is a, a dimension of consciousness that, that I work on. So what is the difference between a conscious and an unconscious desire, say? I've been wondering for years. What and, is it? Well, my view is not, I mean, a standard view, if you were to ask someone what the mm -hmm. off-the-cuff answer would be something like a conscious desire is one that I know that I have and an unconscious desire is one that I am unaware of. The problem with this view, at least in the first instance, is that it looks like I can find out about my unconscious desires. I can learn from my therapist or just from careful self-scrutiny or from my friends that say, unconsciously I want such and such, or unconsciously I think, unconsciously I think I'm unlovable. I could find that out. I could tell you about it. I learned, I realized today that unconsciously I think I'm unlovable. You could then ask me, well, are you unlovable? And I could say, of course not. No, I'm lovable. Someone can love me. But unconsciously, you, could, you can read into my behavior this motive. The only way to explain my behavior is to, is to take it that That's unconsciously... That's an analyst is doing his middle-brow thing on you. It doesn't have to be an analyst. This is, not, this is a pre-Freudian... Um, you know, we, we understand this. We, we, we understand this way of talking, and we talk this way pre-Freud about motives and intentions and hopes and fears being conscious or unconscious. Um, and, you're, you know, we're getting a sort of a, a bit of it there in Shakespeare. 
And so, I, you know, I take it that the simple view, the view that just says, well, the conscious ones are the ones I know about, the unconscious ones are the ones that I don't know about, that kind of epistemic, simple epistemic view of consciousness doesn't pan out. And that's, um, that's an interesting thing for me. I don't know if you want me to go on and say Please what do. I take to be a better view. Um, I take to be a better view to be one in terms of expression, so that, um, and this is a, a view that I get sort of from Wittgenstein, that you asked about Wittgenstein, well, no. Before we came on before the air. Before we came yes. on the air, yeah. Um, tell, tell the world who Wittgenstein was. Uh, maybe the most influential 20th century philosopher. Um, depends on what you think. Um, uh, certainly a very influential 20th century philosopher who uh, you know, worked in the first half of the 20th century. Um, so the right view I take it is, uh, being very quick here, is, is that... Um, conscious mental state, say, a, con a conscious fear is one that I'm able to express in a particular way. An unconscious fear, whether I know about it or not, is one that I'm unable to express in a certain way, namely by talking about it, by saying that I'm in it. So that even if I know that I'm unconsciously afraid, what I'm not able to do is express my fear by saying I'm afraid. You know, of course, uh, most of our listeners know that the ultimate expression of this in modern thought is in psychoanalytic theory as developed by Freud. And you know that uh, in recent years there's been within the guild, that is broadly within the psychological sciences, whether from psychologists or psychiatrists or, for that matter, English professors who've become uh, enemies of Freud. I have in mind Frederick Cruz of uh, UCLA or is he or Berkeley. Um, that in general there is now very serious doubt, even within the psychiatric fraternity, there's very serious doubt whether the concept of the unconscious as a source of uh, very strong motivation and as a source also of the disguise of uh, passions so as to render them symptomatic, that all of this is highly doubtful. That it's a bill of, could be a bill of goods sold by Freud to his followers and sold by those followers to the patients they analyze. And I don't know that we have a clear way of demonstrating the actual uh, existence and persistence of the unconscious as a source of motivation and as a source of all the troubles of human existence. But before you can respond, we are just about due for some commercials. I'd love to know what you make of that argument about psychoanalysis, which has developed in recent years. And uh, we will turn directly back to David Hilbert and David Finkelstein in pursuit of that and related questions after we pause for this. We have been batting around, and we is myself and David Hilbert and David Finkelstein, we've been batting around some questions that more or less belong in the broad realm of the philosophy of mind. There are many other questions, uh, and uh, we are open for any and all questions that you want to raise about how to think about thinking, so to speak, and how to think about the human mind. Uh, our lines are now open. The number, of course, as ever, is 591-7200. Don't be intimidated by the fact that Two professional philosophers are here. One who is uh, not at all professional and shows his ignorance easily and uh, with uh, refreshing uh, uh, ingenuousness is the host of this program. So you can also show how muddled and confused you are if you choose to do so. 591-7200 is the number. The lines are now open. If you're listening over the internet at some greater distance, uh, if you're listening at Monash University in Australia, at the moment, and if you're in the philosophy department there, or even if you're not, and if you want to put a question or put a thought, the easiest way, of course, would be via email, 
And the email address is extension720, one word, at tribune.com. Extension720 at tribune, T-R-I-B-U-N-E dot com. And for phone calls, 591-7200. I was raising the question of the revolt against Freudianism, and more particularly the revolt against the doctrine of the unconscious. Just as Watson and Skinner argued there is no mind, or we can't assume mind, all we can do is check behavior, uh, there are those who say, well, yes, there's mind, but there's absolutely no evidence of an unconscious mind. It's a fiction that Freud invented and which he sold as part of his uh, sort of secularized religion, and it's become part of the general tradition of psychoanalysis. And so psychoanalysts uh, persuade others that they've got unconscious motives, unconscious thoughts reflected in their dreams, etc. But there's no way of really confirming that. Adolf Grunbaum is a philosopher, I think one of you mentioned him while we were on the I break, yeah. who argues essentially that, doesn't he? Yes, he does. Yeah. Um, I, I should say, I didn't mean to, I mean, when I introduced, or I, I don't remember who introduced the, the topic of unconscious thoughts and desires and hopes and fears, hmm. I didn't mean to be talking about psychoanalysis or defending a, system, a psychoanalytic system. People were talking about unconscious hopes, fears, desires before Freud came on oh, the yes, scene. They were. We understand that. We understood that kind of talk. We didn't need Freud to come along to make sense of that. I don't think Freud is the best theorist of these things. Um, Who is? Uh, I am. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I don't know. In I, your book, uh, Expression and the Inner, uh-huh. yeah, I which was about... published just two years ago by Harvard University Press. Right. Um, I'm, I'm joking a little bit, but um, I wouldn't know who to say is the best theorist. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but, uh, you know, Freud has a view. It doesn't actually hang together very well, even even if you just focus on what he thinks unconscious means. Well, it changes book by book almost. It changes book by yeah. book. He thinks he, he talks about perceptual metaphors. We have to understand mm -hmm. unconscious thoughts as ones that in a certain sense we don't perceive. I think that's the wrong view of it. I think he's very perceptive in certain ways, but, you know, yeah, I, I didn't mean to be saying anything about Freudianism. Well, so where's the evidence that we have any unconscious mental activity? Well, it depends partly what you mean by mental activity. In my it? own uh, area of research, which mostly revolves around vision, there's quite a lot of evidence from psychology and from neuroscience mm. that there's a whole lot of stuff going on to produce the conscious visual experience that we have. Uh, so in the case of color, there's inputs from these photoreceptors and very complicated kinds of things go on in order to allow us to see color. And most of that we don't have any awareness of. And I think we got started on this topic when talking about Hamlet. I said our motives are often mysterious to us. Mm -hmm. We don't need Freud to have that Absolutely. thought. And in fact, it's something of a puzzle why there would be kind of any doubt that we ourselves are mysterious since I don't understand computers, why should I understand myself in particular? So there's some assumption that philosophers and some psychologists made that somehow the operations of our mind should be transparent to ourselves, and I don't see any reason but to make that assumption. The, the doctrine of the unconscious, as propounded by uh, the psychoanalysts, but, is that uh, we have deeper understanding that we haven't yet externalized. There are secrets within our own identity which only the analyst can help us bring out, and once we face that in a great cathartic burst, we are somehow rendered more effective emotionally. Um, you know, I'm happily convinced that uh, you can look at psychoanalysis in a couple of different ways, and it turns out it's either circular or it's false. Uh, mm -hmm. And so there I, is no... I'm rather convinced of the same. Uh, so, so there are puzzles, 
we don't even understand ourselves very well, but the specific kind of way to try to solve that puzzle that Freud pursued, I see no reason to think is very interesting. When we invited the two of you to come on this program to talk about the philosophy of mind, you really were expecting to talk about what tonight? Oh, uh, I really didn't know. I just did not well, know. Well, what's the one important thing in your, uh, in your repertoire that you haven't talked about that you'd like to talk about? The thing I wanted to talk about now I've, I've sort of pushed in, which was talking about the distinction between conscious and unconscious uh -huh. states of mind in terms of expression. I got to say a sentence or two about that, so now I'm happy I said All what right. I wanted to. <laughs> and uh, the other David. Um, well, the thing I most like to talk about in all the world is, in fact, color. Yes, and we, you've referred to it. We haven't. What do you do about color as a philosopher rather than as a neuroscience person? Um, the main question philosophers have been interested about color is what colors are. So when something's blue, what what is it? Um, and some philosophers have thought that blueness is just in our heads. Some others, like me, think blueness is a property of the sweater, just an aspect of its physical nature. And then probably the most popular view among philosophers is somehow the sweater and my mind are related in some way, and that's what makes it blue. Uh, uh, so that's the question philosophers are interested in. I think colors are just the way objects interact with light, and I think we're able to see that uh, things have them. And uh, I think... So you're a believer in material reality out there. Absolutely. And the neural equivalence thereof. Um, and I think that... Or the uh, neural, neural register thereof. Right, the neural register thereof. Right, yeah. right. Yeah, I think there's a material world, and I think that using our eyes and ears, we can find out quite a lot about then, it. Then for you, Dr. Johnson kicking the stone was not totally irrelevant to the theories of Berkeley. Um, Dr. Johnson was saying something true, but it was a bad argument. Uh. <laughs> uh, that's a, it wouldn't have given Berkeley any reason to doubt his view. No. Uh, so, so it's an unfortunate fact. But it, in but it convinced young Boswell, probably. Well, everything Dr. Johnson said convinced young Boswell, so, so that's not powerful <laughs> evidence. Uh -huh. uh, uh, unfortunately, in philosophy, saying true things is not enough to convince people. Report on your discipline for just a few minutes before we stop for some commercials and then right on to the phones. What's happening in philosophy, academic philosophy, generally these days? Um, in my particular area, consciousness is still a big topic. People are kind of worrying about the yeah. Chalmers problem. What uh, is the Chalmers problem? The one, the one that I was just adverting to. It's what uh, Chalmers calls it the hard problem of consciousness. He does indeed, yes. And that's kind of, given this material description of the brain and all that stuff, it seems like it's, it doesn't really immediately tell you about mind and consciousness and phenomena. But apart awareness. from philosophy of mind, what else is happening more broadly in philosophy these days? I see a huge split in philosophy along the lines that there's a split between me and the other David here, between people who uh, are so-called naturalists, people who want uh -huh. to understand, who think that uh, science is the measure of all things, and so if we can understand something scientific, if we can't understand scientifically, we don't understand it yet. Um, if it couldn't be understood scientifically, then we, it's not real in some sense, some important sense of real. Um, and people who aren't naturalists, people who think that science is one way of understanding things, but there are other kinds of intelligibility, and in particular that, for this show, psychological explanation is a, you know, yields a different kind of intelligibility from scientific explanation. So that's a, a kind of a gigantic split in the philosophical mm -hmm. world, has been and still is. What's happening in metaphysics? You know, um, uh, David Hilbert told me that he did one year at Yale and then came on to his present job, I gather. I did six. My first job was assistant professor at Yale before they kicked me out. 
And uh, a man I got to know rather well was Paul Weiss, uh, who was uh, a great metaphysician, indeed the founder of the Journal of Metaphysics. Uh, I was a kid, he was a very old man, but uh, we were fellows of the same place, of Silliman College, and I often had lunch with Paul Weiss, uh, and uh, was quite fascinated by him and by uh, and read some in metaphysics under his guidance, actually, at least under his suggestions. Where does meta? What was metaphysics? Does it still interest philosophers at all? Well, metaphysics is just the study of what there is, and philosophers, being interested in everything, are interested in what there is. Uh, in the particular, you would define it as the. The philosophy of what there is. Yeah, what there is and its nature and everything how it, that is the case. Every simply. well, yeah. that would be a one way to put it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what's real? What's not? Mm -hmm. right? And so you know, one one way to have a metaphysical conversation would be to to pit a realist against a so-called anti-realist. Uh -huh. That would be a, a metaphysical discussion. I take it. Um, David Hilbert's a realist about color. He thinks color is out there in the world. It's not a projection of our minds onto the world, so there's a kind of metaphysical thesis, and there are a lot of you know there are a lot of people trying to work out realism versus anti-realism about all kinds of things about ethical properties and all kinds of things, and trying to work out what it means to be an anti-realist and what sense isn't you know and, and if we're not if, how can we have a kind of objectivity that isn't scientific objectivity? Those are issues that are sort of alive and well. There's a guy who uh, died recently, a few years ago, Robin Wink, who was an historian at Yale, who did a book about uh, the OSS, the original mm -hmm. OSS, uh, which was heavily staffed, disproportionately staffed, by members of your discipline. Did you know that? No. Philosophers no. showed up in the early OSS and in the later CIA in disproportionate number. Why is that? Um Philosophers are, by their nature, generalists. We're interested in everything, and yeah. so we're good at kind of reading Sp stuff and synthesizing it and, and, and analysis, and we have no fear. Uh -huh. uh, so I <laughs> march off uh, through large chunks of the scientific literature that would completely intimidate any uh -huh. sensible person. Uh, but as a philosopher, I'm confident that my... Uh, highly developed analytic skills are going to get me through to, at least to what I need. We're also obsessed with illusion and reality. Yeah. So appearances may not be what they seem. That's uh -huh. a philosophical obsession. I do card. I do close-up magic, and I think there's a natural tie. I think all philosophers should be magicians. But but you know you could see why spying, being interested in spying, yes, would, would fit yeah. well with that. Yeah. I knew and I knew that wasn't true in Britain. That Austin and Eyre and many others were also in the uh, intelligence during the war. Uh, Austin loved it, because as a philosopher, you never have anybody to boss around. Uh -huh. But as an intelligence uh -huh. operative, he had minions he could tell to do things. That sounds great. I've always wanted minions. <laughs> yeah. We will pause a quick round of commercials, then on to the phones. If uh, you've been trying to reach us, the lines were all taken. We've now got one or two available again. So try again and move quickly. Five nine one seven two double zero is the number for any question you want to put to David Hilbert professor of philosophy at the University of Illinois, Chicago, and to David Finkelstein, professor of philosophy at the University of Chicago. Uh, nor need these be questions. If you are yourself uh, a thinker, whether formally endowed as a philosopher or otherwise, and want to offer some of your own thought, we welcome that as much as we do welcome questions. 591-7200. If you are listening at some greater distance and want to reach us via the internet, rather via email, the email address extension 720 at 
tribune.com onto your contributions directly after these words. We are talking tonight about the philosophy of mind. What other radio program in Chicago presumes to do that? Um, I don't think there are any. But there might have been one at one time, apart from this one. But uh, once or twice a year, it's great to sit down with professional philosophers and see what they're up to. We've been talking with David Finkelstein, professor of philosophy at the University of Chicago, and David Hilbert, who is professor of philosophy at the University of Illinois, Chicago. Our phone number, 5917200. We look forward to your contributions, whether in the form of question or uh, shared thought. Get them in quickly. Some lines are available again. And here is the first caller. Hello, you're on the air. Hi, Mel. Thanks so much for taking my call. Yes, sir. I'm an educator, and uh, I was uh, listening keenly to your discussion about the difference between our conscious and unconscious minds. And I guess the reason I'm most interested is in how we learn and take in information and also very uh, working at the elementary level, very uh, interested in behaviorism and, and, and Skinner's theories and so forth. Um, my question is if uh, you or your guests have uh, read the book Blink by uh, Malcolm Gladwell, and uh, if you have any comments on his theory about uh, the fact that we're able to make decisions based on what our unconscious mind takes in. I confess that I have not read it, and I think my other two guests confess the same. That's right, yeah. No, but I... I've read I some reviews of it, yes. I don't know what Gladwell says in particular, but there's actually quite a lot of evidence in psychology that that uh, perceptual inputs that we have no conscious awareness of actually influence our behavior, not just our decision-making, in a number of different ways, and that's kind of interesting and uh, Certainly, yeah. uh, provocative. You, sir, have read it, I presume. I'm actually in the midst of reading it right well, now. Well, what, what do you find there that interests you? Um, the premise that we get what we would refer to, I think, in common language as a gut feeling. Mm -hmm. And people, uh, experts in different fields, and he uses quite a, a few metaphors in the world of art and so forth, that people are able to make snap judgments that are quite accurate. And those judgments uh, might be more accurate than when we take painstaking processes to get more data and, and solve problems in a very logical manner. And yet those who make their judgments more on a, on a snap judgment, uh, in some cases, have been more accurate because of the feeling that they have. And his, his premise seems to be that the subconscious is able to uh, work in that way and that we ought to pay more attention to it. It's, a, it's, an, it's advice that has often been given. In fact, Freud gave that advice, you know, uh, where he says... Don't overthink, yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. No, you go ahead. Well, I, I just, you know, don't, don't overthink decisions, you know. It's... Well, he said in important matters, follow your feeling. Uh, in matters of lesser importance, you might do a, a calculus of the positives and the negatives. But in big issues like take the, should you take the job, should you marry this woman or whatever, follow your feeling. Right. It's a, kind of a negative point, but anybody who taught uh, Introduction to Logic knows that most undergraduates are very bad at explicit reasoning. So mm -hmm. it's not particularly surprising that people to try and write it all out and work through it explicitly may not do so well. Though, Sir, thank you for the call. Thank you. Very glad to have... Um, heard from you. By the way, it occurs to me for our listeners, if there's, uh, you are all minds. You all possess minds. And uh, probably there are things about the operation of mind which you've observed as you've introspected yourself, which uh, confound or confuse or bemuse you. Uh, what would you like to know about mind that you have encountered but can't quite explain? Uh, now's the time to raise the question. 591-7200. Tell us about some of the odd aspects of your own mindfulness. 
312, the area code, if you're calling long distance. If you'd rather email us, extension720 at tribune.com. But you know, the relation between motive and behavior, there's a, a, a line of work in my own field that is in social psychology, more particularly in the study of attitude in relation to behavior, which reverses the usual sequence. You, e, you elicit from people uh, a behavior which is counter-attitudinal, which runs against their real convictions, as to get undergraduates in a certain experimental setup to perhaps give a public speech on, a, on the side of a particular issue which is opposite to their own real conviction. And by manipulating the rewards they get or the, the lures that you've used to draw them into this counter-attitudinal performance, you may produce, you do produce, uh, atti inner attitude change. You can get people to alter their inner convictions on the basis of inauthentic behaviors that you have uh, got them to perform. Do they know that they've altered their convictions? They very well, yes, they usually do. It's a, it's a conscious process. Mm -hmm. I've done this, of course, you may recognize that um, uh, this has been done, among others, by Leon Festinger in his work on so-called cognitive dissonance. Mm -hmm. The term has become a rather generally right. used and misapplied term, but that's what cognitive dissonance is about. I've done research on this, uh, and uh, there is much that could be told about it. But it actually uh, coordinates to a common human observation. We are often drawn into inauthentic behavior, if only as a way of getting along, as a way of pleasing our bosses, or staying alive, uh, confessing uh, commitments to positions which are opposite to our own real convictions. And then very often, in consequence of that sort of external performance, we are drawn towards convincing ourselves. Mm -hmm. Well, that's a point Pascal made some time ago. If you want to become a believer, act like one. Yes, indeed. That's yes, right. indeed. Well, it is peripheralism, uh, as it has been called, with regard to um, um, even a, an interpretation, a reinterpretation of the first psychologist. Uh, Theophrastus, in his book, The Characters, essentially is, which is written in 2nd century BC, I think, unless it's 1st BC, uh, is essentially arguing that there are different, he describes human personality in terms of one central trait, but he argues that very often uh, the trait has been developed in consequence of the craft or profession or situation in which the person finds himself. And so what you do tends to shape what you are, is the general view. We go back to the phones. 591-7200, you are on the air. Good evening. Good evening, gentlemen. How are you tonight? Yes, sir. Go ahead. Fascinated by your topic. It's something that uh, has fascinated me for 30 years, ever since I read a book uh, by Julian Jane, mm -hmm. uh, The Origin of Consciousness and the Breakdown of the Bicameral Mind. Yes, indeed. My question really becomes is, you know, we, we read of Socrates, Aristotle, Plato, etc., and some of the pre-Socratics, but we know very little of man's conscious thought prior to the 5th or 6th century B.C. And while people have tended to poo-poo Julian Jaynes, uh, although recently I think David Chalmers and Nicholas Humphrey have started to come into that school of thought, um, I'm wondering if there's some validity to it. Uh, Colin McGinn, the British philosopher, said somehow the water of the physical brain is turned into the wine of consciousness. 
And was there some event? Is there some evolution? Well, sir, before we, get, before we get to that, can you explain to our listeners just what James's theory was? James's theory, basically, very simply put, would be that prior to the time, say, of the Iliad, man was directed by the gods because the two spheres of the brain were not connected by the corpus callosum, and you had a bicameral mind, and therefore you were uh, not really conscious of self, that man prior to that time was not a conscious being. I may reveal that I was there when he wrote the book. Ah. He was a fellow in the psychology department at Yale during, I think, the first or second year I was at Yale. Mm -hmm. And we used to sit up in the Blue Room, which is where we had lunch, uh, a number of us, and uh, he would... Uh, uh, sit there at, while we were eating our sandwiches, he would go on and on and on <laughs> about this, and we all thought it was pretty loopy. But he did write that book. It was published, I think, by Princeton Press, uh, University Press, and it has been uh, something to which people have returned again and again over the last 30 years. Gentlemen, have you read the book? Do you know about I, uh, the Jane's View? I read the book a very long time ago, and so I wouldn't want to speak to the details. I, I just, it always struck me that that it's implausible to suppose there was this huge change. Mm. And it's a theory where the reason the huge change is timed when it is partly because we can't get any data that would prove it wrong. And so I always find that worrisome if the timing is just perfect so that the event happens just at that point at which you couldn't possibly get the data, you would need to show that it was not if the If you right take theory. it literally, it means that Achilles didn't know he was killing Hector when he did. Yeah, loopy seems like a pretty good word for it. <laughs> right. Well, but, but, it, but in reality, I mean... Why are why do we have no knowledge of this type of thought, this introspection prior to this time? I think it's a little bit too easy to just say, well, because we don't, because that's what I'm. Hearing. Well, how do we know that the Greeks, even in uh, uh, even as they besieged Troy, didn't have rich in, introspe inner, introspective lives? We don't know that. In fact, if you read Homer, he, uh, uh, for example, he gives you uh, uh, the troubled heart of Achilles and what Achilles is angry over and why he won't fight even though he's the greatest warrior in the world it's because his uh, uh, assigned concubine has been taken away from him by Menelaus. Uh, there's thought there, there's inner experience. But, but Homer was writing again from a historical perspective, correct? Years after that fact. Well, and he sure. was placing himself into it almost as a fictional author would as opposed to uh, a, a historian. Right, although we have very few texts from before that time and almost nothing before Homer that's in the form of that kind of rich narrative. What we have, and you have to remember, writing isn't that old, uh, is recitations of political events in which questions about consciousness were very unlikely to have come up by the kind of nature of the text itself. But you've you raised an interesting question, sir. I fear we must okay. dash on. I thank you very much for the call. And let us go quickly to another. Hello, you're on the air. Yes, hello, Mills. Um, I would like to ask the guests if they think that in order to be a good psychiatrist, one should also be a philosopher. What an interesting question. Do, what do you think? I think definitely yes. And <laughs> we don't have that uh, in today's psychiatric practice. We have basically technicians who dispense drugs and um, almost, you know, like a cookbook. Uh, psychiatry rather than really an exploration, you know, of the mind. Well, gentlemen, your response. 
Does one could broaden that question? Does being a philosopher, does knowing philosophy and thinking philosophically, make you better at any other intellectual operation you may be uh, committed to professionally? Uh, that well, okay. I, I mean, I, I think I'm sympathetic with the caller. Um, you said that being a philosopher makes you a better spy. Yeah, and a better magician. Um, yeah. Why not a better psychologist? I, I do think, I, I do. Well, I'm, I, I do think there. Are, it, one is a better psychologist if one is alive to philosophical questions. Um, certainly, if one is not just dispensing drugs, but that's a certain kind of psychiatrist. Um, there is a movement within philosophy, uh, a kind of philosophical therapy movement, according to which um, we shouldn't. You know, uh, the the guiding idea here is that a lot of people have what amount to philosophical difficulties with their lives. They can't come. What's to the name of that fellow in New York who? Right, I'm trying to think of. He it. was on this program. Is once, that right? Some ten years ago. Yeah, I perhaps, can't think of his when name. he was getting started. Um, I think that. Being a philosopher allows you to kind of reflect more broadly on kind of whether what you're doing as a psychiatrist makes sense and to understand some of the difficulties in actually kind of knowing that what you're doing really is the thing that works. And my guess is in psychiatry, unlike, say, auto mechanics, uh, that might be a helpful thing to do, that you, you would have some sense of the difficulty of what you're trying to do and the questions that your activity raises. And... I can imagine that that would help you get insight into your patients and uh, at the very least make you kind of not uh, commit some kind of mistakes that might be harmful to people. Do you speak, uh, ma'am, from some uh, uh, direct experience as a member of one of those related professions? Uh, yes, I do from both sides, so to speak, as a member of the profession and also as a patient. Uh -huh. you've, uh, you've had some bad shrinks, it sounds like. <laughs> Well, I think there's a lot, a lot of them out there. Like I said, it's basically uh, very time-constrained, and it's easier to dispense drugs than to, you know, explore various, uh, you know, philosophical questions. But to understand all is to forgive all. You must remember that bad shrinks have probably had bad shrinks. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and we thank you for the call. Thank you. And we will pause for the usual reasons and then directly back. Some lines are now available. 5917200 if you've been trying to reach us do make another quick try and we shall return after this and we return to uh, David Hilbert and David Finkelstein both of them professors of philosophy specializing in philosophy of mind David Hilbert at the University of Illinois Chicago David Finkelstein at the University of Chicago 5917200 is the number uh, some lines are taken some are available if you want to put a question to us the, or a confession for that matter, via the phone, do so. But uh, let me first, gentlemen, catch up with some of the email that I've got in front of me. Uh, one listener puts this question to you. It seems difficult to imagine meaningful thought without language. Accepting that, would highly developed language skills lead to more advanced thought processes? Um, I think I can imagine meaningful thought without language, but the question still makes sense. and Because certainly there's some things that you can't think without the concept and there's some concepts you can't have without the word and so for example if you're going to think about calculus you probably have to have the kind of linguistic skills that will allow you to understand math sure I, I, again I, I think we can make sense of thinking without language as well but um, there are a lot of thoughts that we can't make sense of without language uh, 
as an example in Wittgenstein, he says, you know, your dog believes the dog believes its master's at the door, door, but the dog can't believe. It doesn't seem as if a dog can believe its master will be at the door the day after tomorrow, something like that. Um, it looks like you need language to have um, all kinds of thoughts. I, I guess the question was, you know, does being some kind of linguistic expert help you? Um, mm -hmm. I don't know if learning foreign languages helps very much. I suppose you acquire some new concepts, some new angles. Well, what about things. expanding your vocabulary in your own language to deal with, to acquire words that cover states of feeling or states of uh, uh, experience which you haven't quite thought about before? I think that can help, right? I think part of acquiring so, a first language is acquiring, I mean, acquiring a first language is a process of acquiring concepts. And what about the Orwell argument, which is an interesting reversal of that proposition? If you kill off uh, a number of words, uh, people lose the ability to think about freedom or justice and uh, thus to be bothered when they face slavery and injustice. I, did you want to? kind of thoughts you can have about language or perceptual thoughts or maybe kind of inchoate if you want to have the kind of precise thoughts like the relation between freedom of press and happiness then I think you can't really do that without language you may have some inchoate ideas or feelings that things have gone wrong but you you can't really have the thought that what's gone wrong is we've lost our freedom but I, I don't I, I wouldn't want to overstate it I mean I wouldn't want to say uh, that if you drop the word freedom or free out of someone's lexicon, uh, there's just no way they can think about what we think about with freedom. You can often make do with more words, you know, a, a single word yeah. does something. Of course, in, in Orwell's 1984, you have these great slogans that they put up, in, you know, by big, put up by Big Brother and his cohorts. Uh, freedom is slavery. Right. Uh, war is peace, and uh, which confounds the vocabulary considerably. Uh, another one, this from a listener in Michigan. I can remember an anthropology book that I read years ago that discussed the perception of color of some South Sea Islanders. Apparently, they could only see four colors, white, black, brown, and green. All colors of the spectrum f were fitted into these four categories. Of course, I've always loved the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis that our language determines our perception, beliefs, and behavior. Um, there's... Uh... Uh, interesting evidence that some languages have a set of basic color terms that's much smaller than English and other European languages, including some languages uh, in New Guinea where there's just two basic color terms, basically dark and light. Um, uh, there's no evidence that those people see color any differently from us. They just don't name it the same way we do. But they make all the same distinctions. But they make all the same distinctions and they react to color stimuli. And they have lots of specific color names, like they'll have a name for a color of a particular kind of plant. They just don't have the same kind of rich general color mm. words that uh, uh, many languages have. Uh, one more email question. This from a listener in Nashville, Tennessee. The poet and corporate insurance attorney Wallace Stevens said, quote, Poetry doesn't do anything. Does philosophy do anything? Well, Stevens is wrong about poetry. Um, does philosophy do anything? He was anything? a great poet. Philosophy, one thing that philosophy does is it helps us to uh, uh, get unconfused about things that are very, very confusing. Yeah, I, I, 
I'm not sure. I think it matters much whether philosophy does anything. I, I don't do it because I'm out to change the world. I do it because I think it's uh, cool and it's fun and the questions are neat. But I do think it actually does change the world because it gives us ways of thinking about things and ways of getting clear about things, as you put, that many people and most philosophers are confused about. Should Could one perhaps point to a particular kind of philosophy, if you want to call it philosophy, namely political philosophy? Yeah, I was thinking of Marx. It seems like that. You know, if you want to talk or about, or think about Machiavelli, or think sure. about any of the theorists of democracy, and so on. Think about Rousseau. Surely their thought had consequences for the way in which uh, people have ordered their societies. Yeah, but the kind of philosophy that David and I do, <laughs> yeah, so that doesn't have any consequences no. for the way that people order their societies. I think Although not. we're uh, living in this world created by Descartes, where there's this distinction between inner and outer, and I think philosophy has had actually a huge impact on our culture quite generally, whether. Mm -hmm in the kind of dramatic way political philosophy does. but Well, what happens to your students? They come in and they do uh, a quarter or a semester with you, and when they go out, what's different about them? Uh, one hopes they're better able to reflect on hard things. Mm -hmm. Right. I just want to give them the idea that these are actually questions that you can address and offer argument and evidence with regard to. Because when they come in, they think, oh, it's just whatever I think, or there's no addressing these things, and I just want them to think that you can actually think intelligently about these questions. And I think, to a certain extent, we succeed. And, you know, there's a certain amount of combating rampant relativism. That's a good thing, I think. A very good thing. Yeah. And these days, rampant relativism is the disease of the middle class. And that probably does make a difference to the way that people mm -hmm. live and move through the world. I would hope so. 591-7200, yeah. uh, our number. Back to the phones. Hello, you're on the air. Yes. Uh, I, I would like uh, two things. I'd like some commentary on Aristotle's uh, statement: "Is the mark of a man who doesn't know what it, does not know what is self-evident, who attempts to prove what is obvious from what is less obvious." And also, I'd like some distinction between consciousness, self-consciousness, and reflective consciousness. All right, we can supply that within a minute or two. Um. I'm not sure where the Aristotle quote yeah, is that, going, that. so I, uh, I, I will start with the distinction. So um, consciousness is a general term that gets used in a lot of different ways. Self-conscious is a particular kind of consciousness when one is aware of oneself as a being in the, independent, you know, that exists separate from the rest of the world and other beings. And then I guess reflective consciousness is probably what philosophers tend to call introspective consciousness the kind of awareness we have of what's going on oh, in our, our own minds. minds. Yeah. Um, um, and so those are important distinctions. Uh, I would add to that list phenomenal consciousness, which is this sense of what it's like that we have when we perceive the world. Uh, isn't it also uh, convincing that, for instance, if Coleridge uh, wrote Kubla Khan in his sleep or if the Indian mathematician solved equations in his sleep, et cetera, that there is an unconscious mental operation. In Xanadu did Kublai Khan a stately pleasure dome decree, yes. But he didn't write it in his sleep. He says he wrote it in a, um, uh, actually a, an opium-induced state of transport, but that was broken when somebody interrupted him. Well, wh who was the Indian the mathematician who solved equations uh, regularly uh, while sleeping. Is, isn't it a commonplace that people often solve, wake up, 
with a solution with to a, solution a problem, to a problem that they had sure. understood mm -hmm. prior to that? It is sometimes so reported, yes. Yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I don't see, I guess I agree with something David said earlier. I just don't see any reason to imagine that mental operations are, that are all ones that, that are transparent to us. It seems patently false. Sir, we thank you for the call, and let us range quickly forward on to the next. You are on the air. Good evening. Good evening. Yes, sir. Oh, you could hear me. Well, if you're talking, we can. Now, there it is in, in itself, that's an interesting philosophical issue, just how do I manage to translate? Well, first, how do the sound waves reach me so readily, and what does my nervous system do with them so that I get meaning out of uh, these this stream of phonemes, and then do I get the same meaning that is intended by... The speaker, shall we deal with that or shall we wow. let him talk? <laughs> I, I forgot. Everything. You go ahead, now. I forgot everything. Um, well, I, let me make a few comments. Please. One is that I am so envious of all of you because um, you know you're. I don't have any. Well, I actually have a master's in psychology, but I never really used it. But you're doing what I love to do is think about really very very high level issues, except I have no one really to talk to about it. So. Hey, if you guys want to come over for like burgers and <laughs> fries for a few hours. Yeah. The, the other thing that, I mean, what's obviously very clear is this is like speed chess. I mean, you know, you get on and it's nice and people listen, but you can't, you know, you can't even begin to, um, to explain anything in depth. Uh, in in the time in the time one has, so you know it's sort of like a little little titillation. But to to the extent that you know I have my 15 seconds or whatever on the air. First, if my wife uh, Malka Fagel is listening, hello. I, I would say a couple of things. Well, that's it. Your time's those, up. Those 15 seconds are dwindling <laughs> yeah, fast. Yeah, I know. I know. But more you're, more but matter with less art, if you but, please. But you're men of uh, but you're men of compassion and kindness. Yes, yes, yes. Um, a computer, regardless of how fast, how many things are happening, even to you know a layperson, essentially executes one instruction at a time. It just does it so fast that you think you know millions of things are happening. And mm -hmm. so I would say, regarding um, the unconscious, that um, it's a sort of a loose analogy, but it, it's not unreasonable that. If you define the unconscious as something that's just not there at that time, then it's sort of meaningless. If you define it as something that, you know, motivates us, that's a different story. But, you know, I, I guess I agree with whoever believes that there really is no s such thing that would be meaningful in that, um, you know, whatever is inside us, if we're not aware of it at a given time, it's it's like you know it's like a program that we're not being that's not being used. Therefore, you're rendering from that some sort of judgment about the reality of the unconscious mind. Are you saying yeah, that, that that it doesn't that, really exist? Yes, that it doesn't um, it doesn't really exist uh, substantially. And in, 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 that is to say, it's really you know you could say like a subway. You know, it's under the way. I mean, people don't see it, but it's, mm -hmm. you know, it, it's, yes. it's not, it's, it's not a concept that's really worth but, talking but, about. And, but, and, you know, I, I would also say, and maybe this is from my own psychology background, um, you know, I sh you shouldn't say bad things about the dead people, but I, my, my opinion about Freud is he was the greatest novelist of the 20th century. I mean, clearly a genius, but um, his theories, it, it seemed to me, uh, yeah. well, quite his, like your... His mother called him their golden Ziggy. Uh, 
I liked your uh, subway analogy because the subway, even though you can't see it, still gets things from one place to another, mm -hmm. right. which provides you some evidence of its existence. And, and strange people have been on the subway, walk up the stairs and emerge right. into the sunlight. And, and the, the talk about unconscious processes is often in a kind of, you, you see the effects of things that you're not aware of, and your evidence that they're going on is that they have effects. Sir, we've enjoyed hearing from you. We've got to pause right now and uh, take care of some commercials, and then back to the phones on 5917200. And on to another caller. Hello, you're on the air. Yes, hi, Melton, gentlemen. Yes, ma'am. Um, I'm interested in common sense. What can is common sense learned behavior? It's because I know some extremely bright people, and they have no common sense. Mm -hmm. Is that genetic? No. Like blue eyes or brown hair. Well, what do you mean by common sense? Well, just you know, you go through life and you have you have you either have it or you don't. Um, just what they call common sense. Um, you can't define it, but you know it when you see it. Well, yeah, I guess so. Um, it, it, it's I guess it's. And I don't know if it is a learned behavior or not. Well, what would count as an absence of it? Give an example. Um, if if somebody does something slower than you, there's maybe two or three more steps to get to um, uh, something, whatever you're doing, whether it be um, walking somewhere or some, a project or... Um, if, if, if there's a shortcut, if you have a shortcut and somebody else always and historically does it with three or four more steps, um, and having the common sense to, to maybe cut a few of those steps out. I don't know if I'm explaining that correctly, but, um, you know, common sense just seems to come to me. Um, and my son has it. My 17-year-old son has it. But, but my son and I know that my husband doesn't have it. Well, there's, a, there's a lot of different ways of being smart and different domains in which people can be good at things. And we tend to often expect that people who are kind of good in one domain will be generally good at performing life's tasks. And when that turns out to be false, one of the things we sometimes say is, well, that, that person is smart but lacks common sense. It, this comes up fairly often with philosophers who are really, really good at philosophy, but cannot actually go out grocery can't shopping dress for themselves. themselves. Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, so can that be? Can common sense be learned, or is that a subconscious behavior? It, it doesn't sound like you're talking about any one thing, but sort of a, a range of kinds of intelligence. And intelligence seems to be, as far as anyone can tell, to a certain extent, genetic, mm -hmm. and to a certain extent, learned. And I fear, ma'am, that. Uh, common sense suggests to me that time being very short, I'd better move on to another caller, which we will do instantly. Here is the next. Hello, you're on the air. Uh, yes, thank you for taking my call. In sales, they teach us that if you have um, clearly defined goals on paper, and if you recite those first thing in the morning and before you go to sleep in the accomplishment state, that you have a chance of continuing on with the clarity of goals and having a greater discipline. And if this is uh, true, what is the relationship between the conscious and subconscious mind? And why don't most people, more people, 
look at things that way and and become part of that you know top percent of people that have that type of clarity and as a result accomplish more well one people people one reason why people may not do this is that that unlike you they they're they're not already clear about what their goals are and so they don't know what to recite uh, twice a day so one of the presuppositions of this procedure is you already know what you want so that you can tell yourself how to pursue it and I can say in my own case I'm often as it were unsure what it is that I'm trying to accomplish and so even if there were some perfect strategy it wouldn't do me any good because I need to decide it was the strategy for the goal that I'm not sure that I have yeah it seems like just formulating the goal might be a very helpful thing and then I suppose reminding yourself of it um, I don't know what that has to do with conscious and unconscious myself. Well, sometimes we'll say to ourselves, even though it's, it's maybe something difficult, but you know what? I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. And all of a sudden, it seems like your whole body is, is you know, all of a sudden you're, you're saying to yourself, I'm going to do it. Now, is that because the conscious mind fed the subconscious and now it's reacting back to you in a conscious state? Why not? <laughs> These are all formulations. One might fall back on another philosophical position, namely pragmatism. If it works for you, sure, why not? Okay, we, gentlemen. And we thank you, sir, for the call. Five nine one seven two double zero. Here's another caller. Hello, you're on the air. Yes, my question was: I tend to associate the idea of the soul with the mind. Does the panel? Like, how do you differentiate Well, that's them? a word that has not yet come up tonight. I doubt that it comes up in modern philosophical vocabulary, does it? Um, it doesn't get used much by contemporary philosophers, although historically, if you read Descartes and Locke and Berkeley, by soul they meant mind, and by mind they meant soul. And then there was this further question you could address, kind of, was it tied to the body or not? Mm -hmm. um, um, so in a, in a sense, we still do worry about the soul because we still do sometimes address the question of whether the mind is tied to the body mm -hmm. in that way like Chalmers thinks it is but it isn't and you might have views on that but modern philosophers are trying to kind of look at the questions of interest independently of specific religious views and so we tend to steer clear in so much as we far we can of uh, is a, theolo is a theologian with... then a philosopher who believes in the soul uh, not necessarily. You can be a theologian without, without thinking. That. I mean, and it, you can you can be a you can be non-religious and think, sure, you know, there's a, to talk about the soul is just to talk about mindedness, and so you and I have souls. We're ensouled. Right, and there are people who are of no known religion that think that souls survive the death of the body, and you Absolutely. can get a medium to communicate mm -hmm. with such souls. Uh, uh, I want to give you a last call. Coming quickly. Hello, you're on the air. Hi. Just to mention something that your previous caller mentioned. I've been using a product called HemiSync, which are CDs that have subconscious messages in them, and they've worked fantastic for me. So I'm a firm believer in those. But what I called to say was when um, your guests and you talk about undergraduate philosophy students, I was an undergraduate philosophy student a few years ago, took a philosophy class, wrote a paper that absolutely changed my life. What paper was that? It was on Plato's Allegory of the Cave. Uh-huh. And now I returned to school at 50 years of age. So when we had to write the paper, most of the 19-year-olds had to write a two- or three-page paper because that's as much as they could reflect on their life. I had like a 15-page paper. 
But every time school would get difficult, changes in my life would get difficult, and I would say, I'm going to crawl back in that cave because it's so much easier there. Just saying those words would say to me, I can never crawl back in the cave. I can never go back to baking cookies and doing the things I used to do. That was good for that time period. Now it's time for me to get out of the cave and move on with my life. Well, you got that from reading Plato. You could have got that from reading Betty Friedan. Ah, well, I didn't get around to her. Yeah. I was, I was uh, conservative back then and back tied down to the house. But philosophy has changed my life, and I really appreciate well, all the work that people have done in it. We thank you, ma'am, for the call. Thank you. Bye-bye. So she found meaning in Plato. We haven't talked about the old boys. Uh, no, we haven't. Um, but there's, there's a lot of value in Plato and Aristotle. They were smart guys thinking about interesting questions. And, and cave uh, metaphors are great. You can always do something with a cave metaphor. Yeah. Was Plato's the first use of that metaphor? <laughs> I, you know, I don't know. Yeah. Where is that, in the Republic? or? Yeah. It's in the Republic. Yeah, that's yeah. what I thought. Our guests tonight have been David Hilbert, professor of philosophy at the University of Illinois, Chicago, whose most recent book is titled Color and Color Perception, a Study of Anthropocentric Realism. And David Finkelstein, who is professor of philosophy at the University of Chicago, his most recent book is titled Expression and the Inner. And we return to David Finkelstein, who is professor of philosophy at the University of Chicago, David Hilbert, who is of the same discipline at the University of Illinois, Chicago. Both of them tend to specialize in the philosophy of mind, though they've got other interests as well, to be sure. Uh, a maxim in psychology, which I learned when I was a beginning graduate student, is that all function is an operation of structure, all psychological function, one would have said. Uh, Thus, when it comes to what we do psychologically, our feelings, our uh, thoughts, uh, our moods, um, our rational operations, these are all operations of structure. Structures are at the base. Those structures are, of course, essentially the structures of the central nervous system, and the processes uh, that they are engaged in might properly be called neurochemical. They have to do with millions, even billions of neurons firing off across synapses in all sorts of patterns which cannot yet be fully mapped, though now we can at least find areas of the brain that are activated at a given time. Uh, that being so, and knowing that, uh, as we do, that the, the, the central nervous system structures of other animals are sometimes quite different from ours, the high anthropoid apes have similar brains, though by no means as much uh, forebrain development as we have. Uh, but if you get down to the level of dog, it looks very different. Down to the level of snake or bird, even le even more different, uh, more primitive brain, less of the third uh, layer of brain, which gives us our distinctive qualities. Get down to ants or bees, and uh, it's a totally different matter. C how far down do we go before we have to assume that some sense of self, some awareness of being a being in a world, in a setting which poses problems and opportunities is not there, that it's hardwired and there is no being at home. I think a sense of self is a pretty sophisticated achievement, mm -hmm. so um, I don't think you have to go far down at all. Do you think chimpanzees have a sense of self? It's going to depend on what you mean by a sense of self, um, but without language, I'm I'm not entirely sure what it comes to, a sense of self. Uh, although chimpanzees, at the least, unlike 
most other animals, including most monkeys, ha actually have the ability to recognize themselves in mirrors. In mirrors so most, right. so most animals react stop. to their own reflection as if it were another animal, while chimpanzees, like human beings, can figure out that that's actually themselves. That's been done experimentally. Sure. That's been done experimentally, and that seems to suggest that they have some kind of concept of themselves as kind of different from other things and are capable of recognizing it. Like David, I think probably the sense of yourself as something distinct from the rest of the world may be an accomplishment that only relatively few animals, but the sense of consciousness in which there's something it's like to be that animal, I'm inclined to think, you know, like something it's like to see red or whatever, have a sensory experience. I'm inclined to think that's probably something we can attribute with some confidence to most, maybe all vertebrates. Uh, insects are so different that I don't even know what we're talking about. Yeah, well, well let's start with the vertebrates for a moment. What exactly are you attributing to all vertebrates? Well, so when I look at you and mm -hmm. see your blue sweater, there's an experience of blueness I have, and there's, as philosophers nowadays like to put it, there's something it's like for me to have that experience. <laughs> it's not just a registering of, of uh, color. There's a kind of phenomenal that, 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 that we all know what it's like to see blue. And I think there's something it's like for dogs to have dog sensory experiences. They're not going to be like... Except there is ours. that classical problem of epistemology. You look at my sweater, and indeed you call it, you call it blue. Mm -hmm. uh, and the other David uh, may be looking at my sweater, and he would also call it blue. But the actual internal experience that you've got is unknowable by any one of the other two of us. And so you may have totally different experiences, though you both code them as blue. That's something that some philosophers have thought. And that's something, I mean, that's a problem that kids often come upon. I think that was the first philosophical thought I ever had. I had it, I was remember, it? when I was about seven. I actually don't think it's coherent, ultimately. I, I think that it involves a conception of sensations that's uh, pulling sensations too far away from the context in which they occur. Well, we know that if you've got a variant of colorblindness, not necessarily full colorblindness, which is monochromatic, but if you've got a variant of colorblindness, some keep your blindness, uh, you can still call this blue, but in fact be having a different subjective experience than somebody else who calls it blue. But you won't be behavior. I mean, you were imagining a moment ago something that could never be found out, I take it. And that variant of colorblindness is something that we could figure out. Yes, with the Ishihara test cards, as a matter of fact. Yeah, program. although yeah. this is something I'm actually working on. What you, you can find out that somebody is partially colorblind, but it's actually very difficult to get clear evidence as to how things look. Them. Yes. You have clear evidence that they don't look the same as they do to us, because things that look the same look different to us well, look the same. That's to them. My, that's my very point. Right. Yeah. But that doesn't tell you yet how they look. So so well, what you, the inner subjective experience is. What the inner subjective. But notice that that you haven't yet doubted that they have one. No, I have Which not. was your original question. So, um, but there's a question as to what is it that we can know about the inner yeah. experience of other uh, animals. I'm inclined to think that you started off with the something right, which is that there's this physiological basis for these things. Mm -hmm. And insofar as that's similar, that at least gives us some assurance that what looks blue to me also looks blue to him, because our brains are so overwhelmingly similar in the relevant ways. But can we in any way empathize, approximate, or even for that matter rationally uh, discover what it's like to be a garter snake crawling in the forest and looking up at us? as it may sometimes do. I, I think we can discover and actually know quite a lot about 
what it would be like for a garter snake. Now, what you have to do is you have to learn things about garter snakes. Yeah. Um, um, in my own area of interest, which is vision, if you learn a lot about garter snake eyes, you can get quite a lot about so we're what they find out about the world by looking, and that gives you some idea of what it's like to be a garter snake looking at them. What kind of distinctions they make. And what? You can learn what kind of distinctions they're going to be able you to make and what kind of distinctions yeah. they're not going to be able to make and what yeah. they're going to be able to notice and what not. I mean, there's this but dream of the inner life of the snake. Right, there's a, there's a kind of dream of the thing that's beyond all of that, beyond yeah. all of the behavioral distinctions, beyond what the snake can do, beyond what the snake can, you know, anything that it can show in its behavior. There's the inner thing, the mysterious inner thing, and that's the thing that I'm suspicious of. That's the thing that I think we tend to sort of lapse into nonsense. Of course, there were psychologists, as you know, who had some considerable skepticism about trying to analyze the inner experience of human beings. Uh, it was the American look in psychology. It was the behaviorist look invented or developed by John B. Watson, who started at the University of Chicago, as most people don't know, uh, and certainly perfected uh, in later years by Skinner. Uh, by Skinner, mm -hmm. uh, where essentially the human mind and the human personality, for that matter, were considered to be a black box whose inner workings we really don't know and should not presume to know, but we can develop all the stimulus-response laws that are operative by testing them. Yeah, look, that was one reductionist program. That was one program of trying to say, I'm going to, I'm going to give a, I'm going to have my privileged set of scientific terms, and these, in, the, in those cases, behavioral terms, right? Those are the legitimate mm -hmm. terms, and I'm going to try That's to reduce. What they said. I'm going to try to reduce everything to that. So I'm going to try to reduce or eliminate it, right? So if you want to know what a belief is, or a hope is, or a sensation is, either tell me in behavioral terms, or if you can't tell me in behavioral terms, there's no such thing really and, as and belief. In the age of Freud, where the theory of the unconscious played an important role in psychological thought. John B. Watson, the father of behaviorism, said, I don't know what that means, except that it's, in all likelihood, sub-vocal thought. It's people talking to themselves, but not articulating in a way that others understand, or maybe even that they fully understand. It's sub-vocal or pre-vocal. But he relates thought, he says all thought is really uh, speech. speech.